welcome everybody out to episode 92 of Utah in the Weeds. I am your host, Tim Pickett, and today we have our, what is becoming our annual legislative update with the Department of Health Director of Medical Cannabis, Rich Oborn. Rich is here to discuss the updates to the legislation in the medical cannabis program, and we will discuss in this conversation the hemp changes and the changes to the uh, to the CBD and the over-the-counter hemp sales. What has happened with that? Uh, how we've been able to decrease uh, the amount of THC or Delta-8 in those products available to really be purchased by children, uh, which increased patient safety. There was some controversy and we talk about that as well. Talk about the advertising changes to the program and the added uh, condition that that has been added to the medical cannabis program for patients. This is a great conversation. feel free to reach out and comment as this will be posted on YouTube with any questions that you have about the legislation and we'll we'll answer them all. Other than that, subscribe to Utah in the Weeds on any podcast player that you have access to. We're on all of the platforms. We release these. We try to release these every Friday at 4:20 a.m. Last week we took a little bit of a break. And we're back in the swing of things now. We've got a lot of updates coming up for you. The CEO of High Times and a partner in Beehive Pharmacy coming up in April. We've got a special episode coming up with my sister, who I've been teaching a little bit about medical cannabis uh, with her condition. Just a lot of good content coming out. Season four of Discover Marijuana is also getting ready to launch in the next month. Uh, Of course, April and 420 celebrations are coming. Stay tuned and subscribe to Utah in the Weeds and enjoy this conversation with Rich Oborn. How was the legislative session? I mean, from a workload standpoint, you know? Yeah. Uh, it was it was it was heavy. I'd say we had three bills that had uh, direct impact on us, um, and in the past, some time I, I guess when I if I compare it to last year, I don't think there was as many amendments that we were tracking within uh, the bills. There were two bills last year yeah. um, that had some direct impact on us, and uh, this year there were two main ones. But then there was the third one with uh, SB 153, the Medical Cannabis Governance Structure Bill, that was um, one that we tracked and were providing input on throughout the session. It seemed Um, like this session, there was more work up front. There wasn't as much work on changes at the back end. Um, right, you, did, right. Was that your experience? Yeah. 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 That's how it should be. Um, you know, we don't like to see a lot of flurry of, of things going on at the end because that's when you don't have time to think through things logically. Right. Uh, you don't want to see stuff put together in a rush as much as possible. So, sure. um, sometimes that happens no matter what, but, um, Yeah. Yeah. So 
yeah, I, I'd say that that's a good way to say it. There was some work that went on at the beginning and, um, you know, there are a few tweaks we had to make throughout. Um, and on most of those, we were able to get them in the bills. So that was good. Yeah. Now, as of this recording, Governor Cox has not signed the bills that we're going to talk about today, but is there any chance he doesn't really? I mean, there's always a chance. Um, I feel like there, it's really, if there was a possibility, I would have probably heard about it. Yeah. Um, last year, you're probably familiar with the, the bill that was vetoed that related to the hemp program uh, at the Department of Agriculture and Food and, and the hemp industry. And that was a, that was a big deal that it was vetoed. And so this year they've had some time to work on some things and uh, I don't expect there to be a veto on any of the bills, um, including, you know, the HB 365, which was the one that related to the hemp issue primarily, but then there's also SB 190 that does have some hemp components to it. Yeah, you let's, know. let's jump into that one because it seems like and I did a little update a couple episodes back of 190 and 195, but yeah, but 190 was Vickers' bill, and right. that was the one that was primarily hemp and uh, and over the. It seemed like that was more to do with things that involved the Department of Agriculture, mm-hmm. and then this. Then there was a lot of controversy over this this Delta Eight, and even the naming of things, right? Like. Na- you can't even name it. Oh, let's just let's talk about this because there's <laughs> it seems like there's a lot in this bill right that people were a little upset about. Mhm. It's a little more controversial. It is a right? little more controversial. Sure. So talk about this what's the change from from what's before with this Delta 8 or over the counter psychoactive substances? From the derived from cannabis, I guess that a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and I want to emphasize the Department of Health. While we are indirectly involved, um, because the we oversee the medical cannabis pharmacies that sell these products, the Department of Agriculture is more directly involved in the oversight of the hemp industry, and the Department of Health doesn't have any jurisdiction over the hemp retailers and growers, but but Department of Ag does. Um, and so after December 1, 2022, hemp products in Utah cannot have a combined total THC and any THC analog that exceeds 10% of the total cannabinoid content. So if you're comparing the different cannabinoids that are in a specific product's profile, THC or an analog of THC cannot exceed 10% when compared to the other cannabinoids in that product. Okay. So that was a a critical change. If you're a hemp retailer, you would not be able to sell those products uh, legally under state law. Um, Medical cannabis pharmacies continue to be able to sell these products to medical cannabis cardholders within the medical cannabis industry pipeline. Um, So it's not like patients won't be able to access these products, they will. Um, but it's just only that the through... 16 year old can't go down to the, the, uh, 
the CBD store and buy it over the counter. But this is also added to the already 0.3% total total weight. So right. right, this particular piece, you could buy a 1 to 10 THC tincture, and this would fit that, right? It would have 10 times the amount of CBD than THC, and it would mm-hmm. fit this this thing. But you put you add to that 0.3% by weight, Mm-hmm. And now you have to have a Gatorade bottle full of liquid in order to have, you know, uh, I think it's like six or 10 milligrams of, of THC. So right. it really, really dilutes the, the ability to sell, um, really they're called puck gummies mm-hmm. and they were being sold kind of all over the place. Yeah. Yep. And the basis of this was to help with product safety and patient awareness, so patients are aware of the contents of the medication they're they're purchasing, and in the medical cannabis pipeline, those type of products that the processors uh, under SB one ninety they're required to ensure that the label identifies each derivative or synthetic cannabinoid as a derivative or synthetic cannabinoid. So the the processor is required to be transparent about which of those cannabinoids are synthetic and which are natural. This is going to be good, I think, for the that garage chemistry. And we had, um, I've talked about this before, that a lot of the Delta-8 is made by some organic garage chemistry that leaves some byproducts. And I think this helps uh, with the labeling, keeping bad actors out of the market, essentially. Right. And there are some additional restrictions that the Department of Agriculture and Food places on processors in the medical cannabis uh, industry mm-hmm. when compared to the hemp industry. And so I think that's critical to keep in mind that th- these are medications and there's a, a rigorous scientific approach to these products. We, we don't want to have people compromise their 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 medical condition or their safety by consuming uh, products. And so as a regulator, I, I know the, the Department of Agriculture does what they can to um, ensure that those patient protections are kept in mind as um, there's different tests and uh, for contaminants and different tests are run to ensure that the ingredients of the products are actually what they claim to be in the, on the labels. Yeah. And also that there's no misrepresentation or misunderstanding about whether a cannabinoid is synthetic or not. Right. So that, that's something that'll be new that uh, we'll, we'll be uh, rolling out uh, with SB 190. So that, in, that includes the, does that include the medical cannabis program too, that they're now going to be required to label synthetic versus derived cannabinoids? I think, in most of the packaging that I see, they are already labeling it as such. Right, right. I think that's important to emphasize is that they're already labeling it as such, but this just clarifies the law. I see. In, in relation to medical cannabis uh, processors and, and pharmacies, that um, there's this more clear requirement that that label must identify uh, whether that cannabinoid is a synthetic when it is a synthetic. So you can still purchase THC products that are synthetic THC, but you, when you do that, 
you'll be informed of the on the label that that's the type of product you're purchasing. And I there were um, processors that were I think already doing a good job of that, but this just clarifies the law, makes it so yeah, that, standardizes uh, it right. And it is a so this was passed really as a patient safety and a consumer safety issue, the Delta Eight controversy mm-hmm. and having young people being able to buy psychoactive products that were potentially dangerous to their health. So personally, as a provider, I I like this. I can see there was some arguments about uh, low-income folks not being able to access their medicine, and this helps people go into the... It kind of forces some of those people into the medical market, but that's... I mean, that's a... It increases patient safety overall, and so I... I tended to support this piece uh, despite the controversy of it. Yeah, and I think there's some things that the legislators are doing and also private entities are doing to make medical cannabis more affordable in Utah. Sure. It's it's not, I think the ideal is still not in place, which would be that insurance would be able to help someone purchase this type of medication. But while we wait for the federal government to take action on that, um, I think there's some some good options out there, although we know it's everybody maybe is not aware of those options. And so I feel like you know private entities, they can take it upon themselves to share information about the options that are out there uh, to help to get help for uh, making the the medication more affordable to them. And sure. it's it's great to see that entities are stepping up to play that role and people are willing to donate money to assist others in affording medication that's not as affordable as other medications. Right. So talking, still staying on this, you know, SB 190, there was uh, another thing with felony convictions. If somebody had a felony over 10 years ago, they weren't able to work in a medical cannabis pharmacy before, but now that's not prohibited. Mm -hmm. That seems like a really good idea. Yeah, and that was actually something we had contacted um, lawmakers about. We, we had a, a case or two come up where we did have to deny an individual from uh, being able to obtain a pharmacy agent card because of the fact that they did have a felony. And there was this prohibition of, of any employee of a medical cannabis pharmacy having a, a felony of any type, and it didn't place a time frame on it. Yeah. So. So the law's been amended to allow for that, and I think that's a step in the in the right direction. Although if you do have a felony within the ten years, it can still stop somebody from getting a a, uh, a pharmacy agent card. Having a felony within ten years doesn't prohibit you from getting a pharmacy agent card. It's just it's a factor that the Department of Health considers. Yeah, um, and then we added some dosing forms uh, inhaler nasal spray, nebulizer. Uh, why was an, I mean, I can see the nasal spray for sure. That actually is a product that I've, I've heard that are, a few people are developing. But the, ne- the nebulizer and the inhaler, I don't know of any products out there in, even in other states that are that type of delivery system, like an albuterol inhaler, right? Or a meter dose inhaler. Right. They exist, um, but they're not that common because they are expensive to manufacture, is my understanding. 
And so we don't expect any companies to be chomping at the bit to do this immediately. Sure. But as I think the program matures, it'll be a possibility. And you know, a processor could decide, hey, we feel like there's a market for this. There's enough patients that are asking for it. And um, it would begin to be a legal dosage form. It's uh, extremely it's useful from a meter. Meter dosage in an inhaler form is is one of the big problems with moving cannabis, inhaled cannabis products into the traditional medical market because it can't be, it's just, it's just hard to dose, right? There's only very few products that will measure the amount you inhale and they're $300. And uh, so meter dose inhaled product, while it's not, well, you're right. It, I'm sure it's really expensive to manufacture from a medical standpoint. It's, it's going to be nice. I could think of a lot of patients who could really use it. And then there was this technicality change in 190 where they had EVS, the pharmacy agents couldn't access the EVS. Only the pharmacists could. And I remember thinking, oh, that's that's interesting because like our MAs can access the EVS as a proxy. So this codifies that with 190 and allows them uh, access. Are they going to act as a proxy or do they just have visual access, or is that something that the department has kind of yet to determine? Uh, they will have their own role um, within the electronic verification system. And for those of you who don't know uh, what that is, it's the system that is the patient registration system that pharmacies rely on um, in order to verify if someone has a medical cannabis card or not. It's also the software that a medical clinic and a QMP, a qualified medical provider, uses to make a recommendation for a specific patient uh, to, re to receive a medical cannabis card. So pharmacy agents that work every day in the medical cannabis pharmacy who make up the majority of the employees at a medical cannabis pharmacy, um, they'll begin to have access to the EVS. And the way that's being set up is that a pharmacist in charge for the specific medical cannabis pharmacy location will be able to authorize um, agents. There will be some agents that that pharmacist in charge may decide should have that access to edit and to view that information. But there could be some pharmacy agents that really have no role in the EVS. They do, they maybe just have a niche in the pharmacy of a certain type that doesn't require that they get access to the EVS. So um, that'll be a something that a, P, a pharmacist in charge, the, the PIC, would, would determine for a specific location. And so it'll take some time to work with our vendor and um, execute this change in the EVS, but we'll be engaging with medical cannabis pharmacies and the pharmacists who work there and pharmacy agents on how this is set up and we'll get their input and ensure that we inform them of when it's in production and actually um, able to be used by pharmacy agents. And one thing that's coinciding with this requirement is that pharmacy agents will begin to have to complete a continuing education course on confidentiality and, and patient uh, protection of patient information. And I'm sure that there are some pharmacy agents that are already generally familiar with HIPAA and uh, protection of confidential medical information. 
but there could be some that have no clue about it. So it's important that anybody that works in a medical facility like a medical cannabis pharmacy has um, some, at least an intermediate level training on uh, protection of, of that information and how um, patient information um, must be safeguarded and how, for example, in the EVS, you, uh, it would never be appropriate to search for a neighbor's name in the EVS. If they're not a patient, you have no yeah. business doing searches like that in a, in a medical type software like this. And other medical facilities have these same standards. And so these standards also apply uh, to medical cannabis pharmacies. Although they're still selling a federally illegal product. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, but in the, in the normal pharmacy down the street from me, I mean, all of the techs are all going to have some HIPAA training. They're all going to understand the privacy, the confidentiality. That's right. just standard. And I knew that that was one of the reasons why the, why the pharmacy agents didn't have access before. And so it's nice to see because there's, a, there's an issue, frankly, with um, there was a little bit of a weird thing where the, where the pharmacy agent couldn't transfer the dosage recommendation from a, from a provider into MJ Freeway because they right. couldn't access EVS. And it was kind of a big logistical kind of thing where, where it brought this up or it was one of the things that brought this up as something to kind of solve. Right. And one of the plans we already had in place, regardless of what happened during the legislative session, was to have an integration of information from the EVS uh, regarding the, the dosing recommendation be sent to the MJ Freeway software. So a pharmacy agent wouldn't have to go to the EVS to get information about the recommendation, they'd be able to view that within the MJ Freeway software sure. uh, that they use for their, their patient profile and, and, and purchases and point of sale system. So that was already in the works. But this, I think, um, is just another way that um, a pharmacy will be able to be efficient in helping customers and supporting them and, and having um, a good experience there at the medical cannabis pharmacy as they come in. One thing that I want to point out, though, that's critical is that um, there will be information regarding a QMP's notes that they have. Potentially, a, a QMP may want um, a pharmacy to be aware of a specific patient's treatment history or medication history. And that type of information, it's the option of the QMP to paste that into the software. And they would need to advise the patient of, of this choice they're making to share this information with a, uh, an outside uh, party at the pharmacy. Um, so there's patient consent needed in that type of a case. But there are many QMPs that do choose to keep the pharmacist informed of the other medications that the patient is taking and some details that they feel are relevant about the condition Yeah, that helps the pharmacist make the decision about what specific product may be the best for treating that specific condition. So the pharmacy agents will have access to that information. It's sensitive information and we need to treat it as such. And so it's important that the pharmacy agents go through the training and learn more about, you know, how to ensure that they provide the best service to patients as they protect their confidentiality of their medical information. Let's switch over now to 
that that's a lot of the big items kind of in SB 190, the bill that uh, was kind of on the Vickers, the Senator Vickers side. Senator yeah. Escamilla, she was the one who put out SB 195. That has to do with the medical cannabis program a little bit more on, there was some, um, there was some additions to like making the program a little more uh, inclusive or making the general medical community more inclusive of the program. One mm-hmm. was the addition of the, like, if you run a hospice program, you have to have, uh, you have to have at least one medical provider that's registered in the system as a QMP. Right. I thought that was kind of an interesting addition. Yeah, the requirement does not begin until January 1 of 2022, um, or excuse me, 2023. Sure. Um, But yeah, every hospice program must have at least one medical provider registered with the Department of Health to recommend medical cannabis to patients. Now, one thing that's critical, though, is that if a facility accepts federal or insurance money, they would want to consult with their legal counsel and third-party reimbursement to determine if the facility may allow for delivery and possession of a federally illegal drug while they're in that uh, type of a facility. So although they have to have at least one medical provider um, that is registered as a QMP, there are some things that they should be aware of as it relates to reimbursement of funds from from a federal source or insurance money. This doesn't mean that they are obligated to recommend medical cannabis at that facility. It just requires that they have a qualified medical provider registered with the Department of Health that would be able to do it if they chose to. And this is every hospital, hospice facility, nursing home, or not in the well, state? Well, it's, it's hospice program. So there's only so many of those. It's a specific type of uh, facility. It's a hospice program that must have at least one medical provider registered with the Department of Health as a QMP. Okay, but then a separate requirement is that an assisted living facility, a nursing care facility, or a general acute hospital, the law was modified um, to allow them to receive deliveries of medical cannabis products from a medical cannabis courier. Uh, for a patient who is a medical cannabis card holder. But if that facility accepts federal insurance money or insurance money, I think, well, I would I would think that they should consult with legal counsel about third-party reimbursement um, because they, there could be some specific um, guidance from the federal agency regarding acceptance of those types of products because they are still federally illegal. Yeah. Because you're going to have you. The idea is that you might have a employee of the facility receive these products in order to hand them to somebody else. And that, and that action of receiving the product is essentially an action of receiving a schedule one drug. So we need to make sure that that's, um, that's on the, yeah, that's you need to you need to talk to your lawyer lawyer for sure. Right. Is this 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 kind of goes along with the and I don't know if, if we've we have this. This kind of goes along with this same idea that we're going to allow uh, schools 
there was some clarification on the school system being able to to store medical cannabis for a patient that was in the school system. Uh, not that the employee of the school would there would then handle that if they needed to, but it would. But it, it it's allowed. Well, I'm glad you brought that stat, state statute. I'm glad you brought that up because that was taken out of the bill. Ah, yeah. Because I heard the committee meeting and I heard uh, Senator Escamilla kind of defend that. And there mm-hmm. was some very interesting questions, right? One of them was, so basically, are we going to just let this child show up with it in their backpack? Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 I know of cases where the school district is uh, questioning this because they have a, a child with a condition and a card. And right. this is a real sticky situation because you want the, the child to have access and you want the schools to be protected. And mm-hmm. by the way, I would mention that schools are like pharmacies. They have a ton of medications that they deliver and store for other conditions. Right. Um, right. This is not something that's not done. Right. We have controlled substances there for right. children but, who need them. Right. But they're also federally funded. Yep. So, so they that, pulled that. They pulled that out. They did. Mm-hmm. So as of now, the child would essentially need to be removed from the school property to dose their cannabis with their caregiver and then be brought back to school? Well, I, I think in, in a general approach would be ensure that you vet this with legal counsel and the, the school authorities, the school district. There could be some school districts that handle it differently than other school districts. I, I can't speak for them, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad we talked about that because I thought that had stayed in. But but it hasn't, so that's good to know. Um, the the other thing that was interesting to me is we added acute pain as a qualifying condition. So this means that a person who is about to get a knee surgery, uh, if the provider, the orthopedic surgeon says, you know what, this is going to cause a lot of pain. I don't want you on as many opioids, uh, and I'm going to offer to to recommend. A short-term card. Is that, am I thinking of that correctly? Yes. So any cards issued with acute pain as a qualifying condition, they will always expire after 30 days. Just as when a medical provider prescribes opiates for a limited duration because of a surgery, it's acute pain. So they're not going to prescribe opiates for a long period. It's for a specific um, condition some acute pain that's coming up because of that surgery. So yeah, a a medical provider uh, who would generally prescribe opiates for limited duration, but now they'd be able to recommend medical cannabis as an alternative to opiates. And I would, we expect that medical providers will exercise this with great discretion and in, in cases where they feel like it would be a better alternative medically for a certain type of patient, they're now able to have that as an option. So these two things we've just talked about, the hospice and this acute pain thing, this doesn't sound like something that the Department of Health, they were, they were, uh, it sounds like this was something that you were told was going to be proposed in the bill and not something that the Department of Health would have had a, a horse in the race, so to speak. 
Right. I mean, there's certain things where we contact the legislature and we see if they might be able to tweak something that we feel would help promote public health. Uh, very rarely do we come out in opposition to um, sp- specific provisions uh, publicly. Um, and so we're, we're just typically neutral on, on some of those provisions that maybe don't have as much evidence as others for, for being a, an effective type of treatment. And then, you know, we're responsible to execute the laws that are passed yeah. by the legislature. So we, we want to ensure that they're implemented in a way that's fair and easy for patients to take advantage of um, if their provider chooses to recommend um, you, them. You've, you've done a very good job <laughs> of, <laughs> of, uh, of uh, I'll, I'll, I'll shoot an opinion here about this particular qualifying condition. I, I, I personally think this is kind of silly. I, I can see why an advocate would propose this condition as a provider who recommends cannabis. I, I think that, you know, 99.9% of the time, if you're getting your knee replaced and you need a 30 day card, you certainly qualify for a, for a medical cannabis card in a, in the original system. And evidence with acute pain is different than evidence with chronic pain, but, uh, that's, there you have it from Tim and I'm not a employee or a regulator. So I get, I get to voice my opinion a little bit more freely about this one. I, I like expansion of the program. I, uh, that, that I'm certainly for, I think this was kind of a funny one myself. Yeah. We just hope it's exercised with wisdom and that yeah. uh, providers are uh, careful with how they exercise it. Just as we hope with every other type yeah. of recommendation they do. We and it will be they, good to study yeah. this. This will be a unique thing to kind of study. How many of these are issued? You know, mm-hmm. what's the what's the progress? Do how many of these cards get converted to a regular, uh, longer term card? What's the success sure. of reducing opioids after surgery? And you know, we could design some really interesting studies around that. And in fact, um, not to skip through and go right to the that uh, the bill that that funds a study. There was a bill that funds a study. Right. Yeah. So Senate bill two, that was a, a big appropriation bill. And in that bill, the legislature appropriated 538,000 to fund a study of medical cannabis and chronic pain. And um, that was proposed by representative Ray Ward and uh, the department of health was able to provide some general thoughts about how that uh, should be done and working out details um, of that, but it'll be done through an RFP process where academic researchers at universities have an opportunity to, to bid on receiving these funds. Um, but we're very serious about funding research and we're excited about the legislature having an interest in doing it. And so yeah. we, we want to ensure that it's done in a way that Utah can be proud of that can be shared with other states and help them learn as well as we move forward with trying to understand more about medical cannabis and its impact on chronic pain without federal funding. It's not easy uh, without yeah. getting federal grants to do research. Is um, 538000 a large amount for a study, a small amount? Uh, do we have perspective on that? That's a good question. It depends on what type of study. <laughs> because. Yeah. 
there's like double blind studies that really cost um, thousands uh, more than that uh, of dollars beyond the 538,000. So this won't be something like that. It'll be something on a lower scale, but it'll still be, I think, something that researchers and providers in Utah and outside of Utah will find helpful. We want it to be not just something that's tucked away, but is something that providers can learn from and patients can learn from and pharmacists at the medical cannabis pharmacies can apply to work they're doing. Although, you know, we defer to those studies that have a lot more funding that are published as uh, studies that just, um, you know, have more resources to, to do something that's even more extensive. Those are exciting to see and we hope to see those happen even more, you know, outside of Utah. We see some of those in other countries, in Israel and Canada, um, or two yeah. of the countries that we see them more in than in, than within the United States. Yeah, and I, I I'm interested in why I know uh, Ray Ward was very interested in in getting a little allocation for some for some research to be done. There was talk about whether to research a condition like this or to research the program itself and how it was working. Uh, so it'll be interesting to get this process started. I'm not a, I, I think there's a ton of research on cannabis. I always, I find it interesting that the medical community still says, oh, there's no evidence when there's, you know, thousands of studies being done. Like you say, Israel and Canada have some fairly decent, if not excellent research on some of these things already. But Utah is unique. We like our own programs. Right, we we like to see things done our way, and this is the this is the beginning of doing that. This is kind of a culture thing, I think. Yeah, right? and, and we think, like to see ourselves. Yeah, I think most people agree, though, is that when you compare the studies done on other drugs to those on cannabis, there is more of a volume of studies of scientific rigor on other types of medications that we don't see on cannabis yet there's just a, a bigger volume. So it's just the nature of dealing with a federally illegal drug that there's right. not as much research on it, even if you add the research in other countries. So that's one of the sources of, of some of the reluctance of, of some providers to, to join in and, and make recommendations regarding medical cannabis. There's been some, some good literature that has taken a look at studies, not just in United States, but these other countries, and even combining all of that, there, there's still uh, some weakness when compared to other drugs. So mm-hmm. I, I think that that's important to keep in mind. I, I don't want that to take away from some of the, I think, positive experiences people are having with medical cannabis as they treat their medical conditions and finding more success in treating their conditions with medical can- cannabis compared to other drugs. You know, we don't want to take away from those experiences and Utah law allows for those experiences to happen legally, which is great. But we still want to be able to continue to add to the evidence um, out there regarding treatment of A, B and C condition with medical cannabis. So in a in a really rigorous way. Right. I I agree. There's not there's not uh, comparison studies and the double blind studies, and there's a huge uh, amount of inclusion bias in yes. cannabis studies, um, right. which 
is always kind of an issue in medicine. So when we we added a little bit of um, history, they weren't uh, able to get opioid use disorder as a condition. Mm-hmm. So it seems like we we compromised or the advocates kind of compromised here and added this language uh, that we've got to now consider the patient's qualifying condition, history of substance use or opioid use disorder when we're uh, doing this. Isn't this, this seems like something we're already doing, but it should be. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like and, this should be something. If they have opioid use disorder, this would be a this would be a good, a reasonable alternative uh, to opioids. Well, I, I think the purpose of this amendment to the law is to have a medical provider be more careful in their consideration of a recommendation when they learn about a patient's history of substance use or opiate use disorder, because there are some studies that find that individuals that have those conditions, that they have the propensity to, to overuse medical cannabis in some cases beyond its medical purpose. Yeah. So well, 90%, also it, it interacts yeah. with those disorders. And there's some studies done that show that it actually exacerbates or makes them worse when um, used in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, important that there be a screening done. I think this is a best practice. And people ask, well, what's screening? Well, there's a few types of screenings that are out there. People that work at these type of facilities are very familiar with the types of screenings and different types you do. But as a medical provider, it's just important that there be a, an awareness of the patient's substance use or opiate use disorder history, if there is one. And if there is one, take, take a step back, okay, consider yeah. whether yeah, recommending medical cannabis them. should still be done in light of that patient's condition. Yeah, we, I've, I've had patients who we have removed their ability to, to access all forms, right? Reduced it to, been asked by a patient, frankly, uh, to to reduce their forms to only topicals, right? Because they were having trouble. They were spending too much money, consuming too much. Uh, had a history of addiction to other substances, and uh, it's yeah. I, I I do think it's real. I think there's about a nine percent. Uh, I think the the statistics are between eight and nine percent of uh, cannabis users can become addicted. Which I, which interestingly is about is just barely below the the number for opioids, but I think that that just goes to show that people get addicted to things they like. Uh, humans, we like the dopamine, right? And I and I think provider researchers out there have said there's not there's little evidence that it is a, that it works as an effective treatment of substance use or opiate use disorder. Uh, there's mi- mixed results in the studies that show that. And in fact, there's some studies that show that it makes them worse. Mm-hmm. So what we want to see providers take a step back, consider that recommendation in light of the patient's qualifying condition. If they have a history of substance use or opiate use disorder, this is what a, provider does when they recommend controlled substances 
outside of the medical cannabis program for other drugs that are federally legal, they consider, okay, how does this drug impact these other conditions yeah. that this person may have, right? So yeah. we'd even call other they, providers and say, right. hey, I'm about to prescribe your patient or, you know, our patient now when you're a specialist, you know, we're going to, we're going to add this to their drug list. And what do you think? You know, the neurologist, the, the psychiatrist, right. Uh, create more of a team approach. I, I like the idea. I think it does create a little bit of increased liability on the, on the provider to make sure that they're doing their due diligence. Right. And so providers, yeah, shape up. Right. Uh, Let's see what what do oh the drinks I keep getting emails about the drinks when are the drinks going away when are the drinks going away so so currently you can buy a drink you can buy a, a seltzer you can buy something in a can there's there's a few of these around and we're gonna take that back down to thirty ml so basically a tincture bottle right or a little oil bottle uh, there was some controversy on this too there was and. Uh... I think I can't speak for policymakers, but naturally they weigh, you know, benefit and harm, and they they decided there was more risk uh, to to liquid suspensions being above thirty milliliter than there was benefit, and I think there's uh, uh, I think it's easier to abuse the the use of of a medical cannabis liquid suspension when it's above thirty milliliter. Um, yeah, and, and I'll, and I'll it. say it. I mean, a, a can of a can of spiked, you know, seltzer with THC in it just looks rec. It just it just looks more recreational as a product right. than a than a tincture oil or even a select squeeze where uh, where uh, Cureleaf makes that drink additive. Even that looks less recreational or adult use than, than the than a than a four pack or a six pack. Sure, and you don't typically see in a from a Walgreens. You don't go to the pharmacy and purchase a liquid suspension to treat the types of conditions that are right. qualifying conditions in the Nyquil state of Utah. doesn't come in a, a can that you crack open. Right. Right. Yeah. There's there's a reason why it is the way it is. It's it's for patient safety. Sure. So, so same goes so in this in this respect. Patients have until the end of November, basically Thanksgiving, folks. They'll they'll be maybe be on the shelves till then. But I doubt they'll make any more of them. I bet they just clear out their inventory and then that's kind of it. Right. Yep. Let's talk about advertising, because this was something. That got changed a little bit, not not a ton. I, I see you getting out your your cheat sheet here because, yeah. <laughs> right? This is wholesome co delivery doesn't the the delivery third party uh, uh, explain the advertising changes? Yeah, so I think there was a lack of clarity in the pre, in the current law, and with these bills that goes into place with SB 195, there's more clarity as it relates to advertising and the limits that are placed on medical clinics and, and medical cannabis pharmacies. And so the law states that a medical cannabis pharmacy, they're able to advertise in any medium. So there's no longer restriction on the type of medium they can use uh, for advertising. There, 
In the past, there was, but with SB 195, there will not be. But they're able to include information in their advertising, such as a service available at the pharmacy, uh, the best practices that the medical cannabis pharmacy upholds, um, education materials. They can advertise those, obviously. That's important. And their inventories, they can advertise their inventories, obviously. And a medical cannabis pharmacy may provide information regarding subsidies uh, for the cost of medical cannabis treatment to patients who affirmatively accept receipt of the subsidy information. So all those things are really important. Um, Pharmacies will be able to do those things, um, some of which they could not do in the past because they were restricted in the type of mediums that they could that they could engage uh, patients in. So that I think will have uh, an impact on on, uh, patients uh, for the good. There'll be information that'll be more accessible about education materials and best practices that the medical cannabis pharmacy upholds. So I I think it clarifies some of that. You can't, you're not passing out coupons at the, at the uh, county fair, right? You're, you're having to essentially be a patient and opt into those communications to receive like a coupon, a subsidy program. Right, right. So a, a, a pharmacy uh, would not be able to advertise promotional discounts or incentives. They would not be able to advertise a specific medical cannabis product in their advertising. And they would not be able to advertise uh, an assurance regarding an outcome related to medical cannabis treatment, for example. Yeah, um, those are some things that they would be prohibited from doing. So, um, those are s- some of the advertising limits that are in, that will be in place under SB one ninety five. Yeah, I th- I think the clarity is somewhat helpful. We've already run into it uh, with utahmarijuana.org with uh, billboards and Reagan and everybody's kind of trying to shift and adjust and making sure that everybody's in compliance. And so I'm sure you'll have a lot of questions uh, coming up. In fact, I was talking to uh, to Cole today who, who was like, oh, you're talking to Rich. Ask him about the advertising. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, one thing that I think is uh, great is that a nonprofit that offers financial assistance for medical cannabis treatment to low-income patients, they may advertise the organization's assistance if the advertisement doesn't relate to a specific medical cannabis pharmacy or a specific cannabis product. So there is this emphasis on allowing the nonprofits to do that. Yeah. I I don't know that you can register a 501c3 uh, related to cannabis yet, but uh, certainly like our Uplift program that subsidizes uh, low-income Medicaid and terminally ill patients was one of the things that I know the lobbyists and the activists kind of uh, made sure to to mention to the legislators that said, right. hey, you know, we're bringing people through the program who can't afford it because it is costly uh, for a lot of people. And right. the program essentially was designed for these low-income folks and terminally ill and really chronically ill patients, and yet there was a there's a bunch of them who can't afford to even get into the program, as it is. So helping those uh, patients, it's been surprising how how interested the growers, retailers, processors are in giving back to those programs and subsidizing that. Yeah, which. Kind of, I don't know whether some people think it's ironic, right, that they're using their profits to help subsidize the poor. But on the other hand, 
you kind of have to have fire, you know, the cash flow is, is fuel to the fire. This thing has to run. Yeah. And so we'll be working with the industry on putting together some additional standards and in, in rule that relate to some of these advertising standards that are in the statute. We've got some authority to do that. And so um, we'll, we'll be reaching out to get some of that input. Cool. So let's talk about the growth before I let you go. Um, what are we up to cardholder wise? Yeah. So as of the end of February, uh, we were at 44,800 active medical cannabis cardholders. And um, that represents uh, a growth of, you know, I'd say between uh, 1,000 and, and 2,000 cards per month, new active medical cannabis cardholders. And so we've seen a, a steady rate of growth um, happen, which is good to see, um, although we know that medical cannabis isn't for everybody. And, and so when we did an analysis, uh, we found that there was about a 70% card renewal rate. And there's lots of reasons why people would choose to renew their card and a lot of reasons why they may not choose to renew their card. They may find that, hey, me- medical cannabis isn't working for me, but these other medications do or these other treatments do. So I'm not going to renew my card. I'm going to work with my provider on you know, these other medications or treatments that are working better for my chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, like anybody, people just don't want to buy something to buy it. It's expensive. Yeah. Um, so also. Yeah, and, and I know yeah. cost is cost is a significant answer we get when people uh, let their card lapse. You know, cost of the QMP visits, cost of the product, whether or not all of that's justified or not. That's just a big reason people leave the program. Right. One of the most critical things that the Department of Health has been implementing just recently is uh, the Limited Medical Provider Recommendation Program. And there have been approximately 50 limited medical provider recommendations since um, January 19, 2022, when it was launched. Mm -hmm. And these are uh, providers who are not registered with the Department of Health, but who choose under the state law to recommend medical cannabis to up to 15 of their patients. And um, there's something like 16,000 controlled substance license holders in Utah, right? Um, right. Available for the limited medical provider program. Right. Any MD, DO, APRN, PA, or podiatrist falls under that. Yeah. And so we, we've seen uh, just a steady growth, but it's been a, a, a slow growth just because naturally it takes time for people, to, for providers to feel comfortable, I think, with a new program. And so we've done some webinars just recently. We've done four webinars since January to help providers who are interested in learning more about limited medical providers and how they can recommend cannabis in in an easy way. There's information on our website that a patient could direct their regular physician to if they wanted their physician to explore that possibility of recommending to them and making them one of their 15 and so that's one thing that I, I think is helping patients make a medical cannabis visit more affordable because in some cases, they in the past, there have been some clinics that I think have been charging a lot more than other clinics uh, for oh, similar I a, service. I did a podcast and a guy's in the $5,000 range over yeah. two years because of uh, uh, a clinic that was having him come up every 90 days 
for 400 bucks. It was the worst I'd heard about, but but there still are. And now there's a website people can go to uh, where they can see a little bit of this. Uh, they only see the cost, but there is a website where people can look at the the initial visit cost, right? Right. So policymakers were listening and they thought, this is not right. We need to do something. So they created this limited medical provider program as just one way to, one strategy to address this, this concern. And a second strategy was to require that the Department of Health work with the state auditor's office on, on gathering data from all the medical clinics that have QMPs uh, who advertise publicly that they offer medical cannabis evaluations, um, that they report those fees to us that they charge, and that those fees be posted on uh, the state auditor's website. And so we're getting about 200 to 400 visits a week um, to that website, which is a good sign. We like to see that people are using it. Yeah. And um, this is not just for people that are wanting to get a medical cannabis evaluation for the very first time, but it's for those that have been in the program for a long time. Maybe they joined in March, 2020, and they, um, at this point, are ready to just learn more about what some other clinics are charging and they want to compare some of those costs. And as you know, uh, Tim, there's different reasons why clinics charge different fees. Some clinics take more time with their patients and maybe have more training than other uh, providers do on a particular subject related to medical cannabis. Yeah, not a not a bad place to start your search. Definitely right. not definitely not a place I would say to end your search in in who to go see. Right. Um, but more information is always better. Right. What's some of the plans for 2022 in the uh, in the program that the Department of Health has? Yeah, so one thing that we're excited about is uh, putting together an analysis of medical cannabis product inventory across the state. And uh, I think there's, from some, a concern about not finding a, a, a certain type of product in Utah. And we want to be able to do an analysis that actually um, relies on um, some of the actual inventory available across the state to really yeah. see if some of those concerns are valid. And then we want to share those, uh, that analysis with clinics, with uh, pharmacies, with the industry in hopes that they would find creative ways to address some of those gaps that may exist yeah. um, throughout the state. Yeah, we've heard of those uh, where where we'll send a patient for a certain product and then it's not there. But yeah, it'd be, it'd, it'd be very interesting to know and be able to kind of look at whether or not yep. that's really true. And we understand there are some unique conditions that people suffer from that require unique types of products. And so th- there may not be a market right now in our program, but as the maturity of the program increases and there's more patients, there may be a market in a year or two for certain types of products to be worth it for a, a processor to uh, manufacture. Yep. Um, you know, such as a breathalyzer or something like that. Yeah. Uh, we also want to do additional outreach to medical providers, medical clinics, and stakeholders to ensure that they're uh, receiving accurate information about the laws in Utah and also uh, best practices and 
there's some great information in um, some in a publication that the Cameroon Product Board has put together that we feel is underutilized and could be, um, I think, uh, shared more universally and distributed uh, with providers. And we want to share it in a way that's easy for them to digest and it's not complicated. So I think we'll do some additional outreach and we're excited about uh, those plans. Um, We'll be helping lawmakers with a medical cannabis governance study during the next year, there was Senate Bill 153 that passed um, that required that um, lawmakers put together a committee that will study the feasibility and the benefits, potential benefits of having the responsibilities of the Department of Health under a single agency with the responsibilities of the Department of Agriculture and Food. And other states have that type of a governance model where it's all under one single agency. And there's reasons why um, that could work. There's reasons why uh, it, it may not work, but legislature wants to do this study and we're happy to help them conduct that. And they plan to include um, not just us in it, but I think even uh, more importantly, patients and providers in, in the industry and getting input on how things are, are put together long-term and the uh, the legislature plans on um, putting together this this study and conducting it. Um, I think the deadline is October 2022, and then yeah. potentially taking action, legislative action during the legislative session of 2023, if the, the study has recommendations that lawmakers want to take action on. Sounds like you got a busy year, and you got to upgrade the EVS system. Yes. Right? Yeah, I know that's something that'll impact um, pharmacies quite a bit and also providers and yeah. clinics um, as they are the primary users of that system. And we want to make things uh, just easier for people to get access to information so they can spend more time with patients and, and help them get through some of the things they're dealing with with medical conditions. And we, we want patients to be able to just have better access to the to, to the counseling that's available at the pharmacies. And sometimes it starts with improving the softwares that they use to allow for more uh, time that they can spend one-on-one with the patient. So yeah. that, that's one goal we have. Well, there's a lot that's uh, updated. This has been a great conversation. I, uh, you know, I, I think we've gone through a lot of this stuff that people will be interested in hearing about. Um, if you're not subscribed to Utah in the Weeds, you can subscribe on any podcast player that you have access to. Uh, anything else we're missing? No, that was quite a bit. We're excited. Yeah. That Last year, we passed. ended up taking a long time as well. So this is this get, turning into our annual uh, legislative update with Rich Oborn, the, uh, the Department of Health Medical Cannabis Program Director. And uh, appreciate your time today. Yep. Good to chat with you, Tim. All right, everybody, stay safe out there.